0: This is the Instrumental Music Curriculum podcast from Valdosta State University. I am Dr. Benjamin Harper. Today we are talking about organization, preparation, and communication as cornerstones of professionalism. So as you have gathered over the last several weeks, being a music teacher is not always just about music. You are a teacher and you are a conductor, but you are also an administrator, a committee member, and a counselor. In all of these capacities, you are a role model, a responsible adult, a trusted and respected colleague, and a community member, both within and out of school. Respect is earned by meeting the needs of others. Your level of organization, preparation, and communication are the three pillars in making people feel confident in you. So let's talk a little bit about organization and some basic skills. The first is, do you have a paper planner? A planner or calendar on your computer does not count. If you do not have one, you need to run out to the store and get one today. Target and Walmart have many that they would be happy to give you for free in exchange for money. A planner should have a space for each day with enough room for notes and lists and other things that you need to be reminded about. Paper planners and taking notes by hand have been proven by multiple research to show that you can improve your memory retention. Digital note taking, even if you were doing it with an Apple Pencil on an iPad where you can handwrite write your notes and draw little things. That just doesn't work the same as good old-fashioned paper and pen. Digital notes are great when you transcribe them from notes you've already taken by hand. I actually used to do this when I was working on my graduate degrees. I would take notes by hand during the day in class and then I would transcribe and reorganize them on my computer at night. This is still something that I do in my professional life. Before you start the day, you should do these things in your paper calendar. You need to one, List three things or goals that you will accomplish that day. In my planner, today's goals are to finish writing this lecture, cancel a couple of subscriptions I no longer use, and prepare for two important meetings I have this afternoon. Second, you are going to write in the schedule for the day. Some people do this weekly, but I find it helpful to keep a master calendar on my computer and transfer it to my planner on a day-by-day basis because things change. And third, write in other tasks that need to be accomplished at some time. Things that you need to get done today should have already made it to your priority list, but this to-do list is for the things that need to get done sometime, maybe not today, maybe in the future but they need to get done sometime. They are not time sensitive to being completed today. There are two types of dates when you're making these to-do lists. There's the due date and the due date. The d-u-e date is the day that this thing is absolutely must be completed. The due date, the d-o date, is the date that you're going to finish or accomplish the task. Another organizational system that is often neglected is the one on your computer. How are files and folders being organized? Are files consistently named so the information you need is in the file name to help you identify what you're looking for? Also, do you have a backup system? You should have three copies of every file. The first will be stored locally on your computer for ease of access. The second should be stored in a cloud drive service like Dropbox or Google Drive in case your computer fails. Then you have a backup available for access from another device. The third copy should be stored in an offsite backup meaning it is stored in a safe and secure in another location separated from your computer and your cloud drive service. This is in case you have a catastrophic technology failure, then you can pull files from this off-site backup and not lose too much data. What is your process for organizing files that you need now from files that are resources and from files that can be archived so you can search later but do not need in the near future? I have two sets of files on my computer. One set is the need now working on now files and the second set is archives and resources. Name your files in a way that can make sense to you and provides quickly searchable and viewable information. Please take note of how I name files in our Teams folders, I name files similarly on my computer so I can quickly search for and identify what I am trying to find. The time you put in outside of school is reflected of your level of organization and preparation. Should you have a life outside of school? Yes, absolutely, and we'll talk about work-life balance later in the semester, but sometimes you just need to sit down and use your evenings, weekends, spring break, summer, etc., so that you can be better prepared. Take the time needed to be well organized, but do not let it consume everything. People often spend too much time on organization, and they don't have time to do anything else. My advice is to spend as much time as needed to be well organized, but don't spend any more time than that. Use your time for prep and getting things done. Set aside time to organize, but also set aside time to get things done. You need to be a stunningly good educator and preparation is going to be your key to success. What is included in preparation? It's not just writing lesson plans, but it's also reading and researching and going to performances and consuming music from all genres. It's not just what you prepare, but also how. Did you put in the time to figure out all the angles? Did you learn what the new research says about best practices or did you learn about updates to the topic? Did you take the time to study the topic in depth? and master the concepts you will be teaching? Did you figure out ways to reach all learning styles and how to integrate previously taught concepts to help reinforce new concepts? And do the new concepts provide a path further down the line for teaching even newer concepts? Do you know everything possible about this concept? The list is endless, and there's no such thing as being overprepared. If you have taken any of my classes, You know that we talk a lot about professionalism when you communicate. So here's just some friendly reminders. First, use appropriate titles such as Mrs., Mr., or Doctor. Use academic and subject-specific language. Using academic language conveys mastery of the subject. And here's a couple hints. If you are communicating with people who are not versed in musical vocabulary, Use the music vocabulary appropriately in context, but always follow up with another way of getting your message across without needing subject-specific vocabulary. This teaches people what you meant without being condescending. Here's an example. This piece is a study in dynamic contrast and orchestration. The composer uses a lot of loud and soft volumes and different combinations of instruments playing at the same time to highlight their differences. You gave a definition after you used the music-specific vocabulary. It's pretty helpful. Another communication hint, Please be efficient. Do not waste time. No one ever said, man, I wish this email was longer. Email is a get in and get out strategy. Say what you have to say. Should you be text messaging? Only if initiated by colleagues as an appropriate means of communication. This can be tricky as texting is more relaxed in nature, but professionalism must be at the forefront. Never, ever, and for any reason, I mean this. Text or Facebook or Snap Or Instagram or anything else with your students they should not be your friends parents are tricky because you will develop friendships with some and so sometimes that line is blurred but there's a difference with students you can be friendly without being friends think of classroom management as clearly communicating expectations expected outcomes and the consequences for not achieving those outcomes is a banned handbook truly necessary? Not if you have a culture built around expectations. You need to outline exactly what students will learn and what they will be able to demonstrate in your classroom. You need to let them know what happens if they do not learn information or acquire the skills necessary for success. You should focus on educational outcomes, consequences for not achieving mastery of those concepts. How do you address behavior? Well. Many bands have a lengthy band handbook, and most of it's about behavior. How many bands use behavior as a grading criteria, like attendance, which sends the wrong message about the importance of the curriculum being taught? Schools have behavior policies or codes of conduct, and generally, those are broad enough to cover everything that you need to in band. The more you create specific policies specific to band or the music classroom, the more you alienate your classroom from the other academic classes who will play by the rules. You do not need to set up your own set of rules. You need to work professionally within the communities of your students, their parents, your colleagues, your administration, your school, and your district culture, and the community in which you live. Be a positive force in the community, be an advocate for your students and the people who live in your town or city, and always be educating. But make sure you have your act together to build trust, respect, and support. Dr. Brooke Johnson is an assistant professor and director of athletic bands at Miami University in Ohio, where she oversees all aspects of the athletic band program, teaches courses in the music education curriculum, and directs the Miami University marching band and conducts the symphony band. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the pod.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: We are glad to have you. Let's start out uh, with the same question we ask all of our guests. Share with us your teaching experience and how you got to where you are now. What was your path in life?
1: All right. So I uh, finished my undergrad at the University of Delaware, and then I went on to teach at a um, at a high school in uh Calvert County, Maryland. It was called Patuxent High School. Um, And I actually took over the position from a a fellow Delaware alum. So I I had some connections with them and was able to get the scoop on on the job before I took it, which was great. So I spent three years at Patuxent High School. And from there, I went on to uh, pursue my master's degree at Appalachian State University in North Carolina. My degree there was a music education degree uh, it was an emphasis in band directing, which was basically like a conducting degree, but I had to do all the music ed stuff too. So, um, that was a great two years. I, you know, was a graduate student with, um, the marching band and all the concert bands and did a lot of teaching and hands-on stuff there. So from, uh, North Carolina, I decided, you know, I love teaching college. I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, but it, I found it a little challenging to pursue college jobs with a master's degree. <laughs> but I ended up, um, for two years in a row, I ended up in interim college uh, jobs. So the first one was at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. Um, and I was the, uh, I guess, director of athletic bands there. And then the year after that, I was the Um, I guess associate director of bands at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. And from there, I finally ended up at the University of Kansas to pursue my doctorate, Um, spent two years at Kansas. And then uh, that brought me to where I am now, which is at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where I am the director of athletic bands and um, assistant professor of music. So aside from the athletic bands, marching band, pep band, I'm also teaching some undergraduate music education courses, um, things like brass methods, marching band techniques, uh, instrumental methods. And I'm also supervising student teachers here as well. So I feel like I finally made it to like the, I I don't know about dream job, but it's certainly as close to my, like my dream job that I ever thought I would get. I mean, this is exactly what I want to be doing.
0: Well, Good. Because you sound like a busy person.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh, what is your
0: philosophy of music education?
1: Uh, so really i want students to leave my classroom loving music and wanting to pursue music as a, a lifelong activity um whether that means they go on you know obviously i teach music education students so i know i hope they go on to teach music but even as a high school teacher my goal was not everyone's gonna leave and go study music but i hope they continue to stay involved in music and play music and Uh, or even just attend concerts and support our programs in the future and advocate for us. Um, I want students to leave, leave the classroom with a passion for music.
0: Awesome. Uh, Tell us about your first year of teaching.
1: So my first year of teaching was exciting and overwhelming. And I, I think I remember it, but it's kind of like a blur. (laughs) Um, So I was at Patuxent high school and I was so, I mean, I am so not busy now compared to what I was doing then. I was the only band director at a relatively, relatively small rural program. Um, so I, you know, conducted two concert bands, a percussion ensemble, a jazz band, um, a marching band, a pet band. I did pit orchestra for the musicals. I d- I was like the auditorium tech. So anytime anything was happening in the auditorium, I was like the sound guy all of a sudden. Um, and you know, it was just incredibly busy and, and fun, but I was 22 years old and I was doing the job I'd been wanting to do for a long time. So I dove in and, um, and I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed getting to know the students and the parents and, um, I had overall a really fun rewarding first year.
0: What was like what are the big lessons that stick with you from that first year? What did you learn the most or the hardest that year?
1: <laughs> do you want to, do you want like a real do you want real time story?
0: I want real time like, stories. Okay. My students love story time, but also I think they need I think they they want to know what it's really like.
1: I think you know, I learned I mean, I think we all think that band kids, band kids are the good kids in the building, right? But I learned that even good kids just do dumb things. Um, And so my like claim to fame first year story is that uh, I, you know, like most band directors, I had a giant key ring full of, I don't know what most of the keys went to, like closets and-
0: Yeah, yeah. And you only use like one or two of the keys with any regularity.
1: Exactly. So I had like my one key that went to like the music wing. And then there was a key to, we had a big marching band trailer outside. So we're in the middle of a wind ensemble rehearsal, we're chugging along and we all of a sudden a percussion instrument that we need, we realized was left in the trailer for marching band. So I find the trailer key on my key ring and I call over a percussionist and say, Hey, can you run out to the trailer and get Whatever it was for me. And this is when I should have known better. He said, Can I bring a friend? (laughs) And I should have said, No. But I said, Sure, go ahead. I just trusted them. I didn't know any better. And so they leave. I'm back in wind ensemble rehearsal, not paying attention to the fact that they're gone longer than they should be. And towards the end of class, they come back, set the keys on my stand, and We go about our day. So I go to get into my office with literally the one key on the, you know, 30 keys on this key ring that I use. And the key is, I think that was the key that either wasn't there or no, I think that key was there, but it was like dented. Like it was messed up. The key was, was totally jacked up. So I start looking at my other keys and I'm noticing that there's one that's missing. I'm noticing that some of them have these dents in them. I go to, we have these, uh, we had safety advocates in our school who I think were like retired police officers. So they launched this investigation about what happened to the keys and long story short, they found out that students had, um, they had found bolt cutters in the Marty band trailer and they, I think genuinely at the time I took it very personally, but I think genuinely they were killing class time and they thought what, like, let's cut something with these bolt cutters and see what it will actually cut. Turns out it does cut keys (laughs) because they chopped one of my keys and then they freaked out and they threw the key into the woods near the trailer And they came in and hoped that it was going to be one of the keys that I never used. (laughs) But that was not the case.
0: That is (laughs) the exact type of story I expect from a first year teaching. And that's exactly what I expect high schoolers to do when you hand them a wad of keys.
1: Yeah. And I, I just was so trusting. And I thought, these are good kids. And they were good kids. But they also just do dumb things sometimes. So uh, they, you know, there was a whole bunch more to that story because we were, the, you know, two days out from an overnight trip and two of the kids that were involved were like two of my seven member drum line. So we're, and we're about to go on like a marching band competition trip. And so then it's like, can, do they come? Do they not come? What's the, I cried in my principal's office. I'm so embarrassed to even think about it, but I mean, we worked it out. I had great support for my administration. So they, they kind of said, how do you want to handle this? What's the, what do you think is the best way? Um, and we ended up I am pretty proud of the solution we ended up letting them come perform because if they didn't it really would have hurt the whole group but they weren't allowed to ride the bus or stay in the hotel or they had all these rules so I mean it sucked for their parents because their parents had to do all this extra work and they wrote me these long apology letters but um but it, you know I I took it very personally and I thought these these kids hate me I'm a terrible teacher they're out to get me and it I don't think that was it at all I I think they were just being silly and killing class time. And um, so, yeah, I, I learned not to take things quite so personally when little things like that happen. Because uh, at the end of the day, I think high schoolers especially, they're so, I mean this in the best way possible, they're so self-involved <laughs> and they're, they're doing way less thinking about us than they are themselves and how their friends are perceiving them and all of that. So,
0: yeah, I think the one thing that stuck out to me that you said was they're good kids, they just make bad decisions sometimes, and they just they they're so self involved they just don't know what they don't know, and they don't know what exactly what they're doing, and they don't know what the consequences might be
1: absolutely yes. yeah. yeah that that's my good my good first year story though I don't know if that if i I guess I did learn some things from it, but
0: Well, when you're also when you're a first year teacher, it's really hard to not take things personally. This is you—you haven't had that experience yet of, I don't know, walling yourself off and being able to compartmentalize certain aspects of your job.
1: Yeah, and I think what we do is so. I don't know, maybe a math teacher would say the same thing, but I, I do think there's something about teaching music that is so much more personal than other subjects, maybe because we ourselves are more vulnerable in front of our students and we expected the same from them. But I do think it's hard not to take things personally, because I don't know, especially as the band director, I it's always fun to be the teacher who, you know, kids want to come eat lunch in your room or hang out with you in their free time and get to know you. Um, And so I just took this as such a hit, like, man, they must really be out to get me. And that just wasn't the case.
0: So now that we've covered one scary aspect, what is the what do you think is the scariest part of going into the first year of teaching for most students? I,
1: I for me, I think there's two things. Uh, one was maintaining a budget, which I don't know if everyone feels as scared about that as I did, but I thought I. I don't know, until I started teaching one, I just didn't have money. So I felt like I didn't even have, you know, I didn't have a basis of knowledge for how to maintain a budget. And then I thought this big band budget is going to be my responsibility. And that overwhelmed me quite a bit. Um, But also just like, I remember day one, walking into the classroom, and being like, whoa, these students, like no one's here with me. These students are about to walk in. It's my classroom. They're my responsibility. No one's making sure I'm actually doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It was like this huge responsibility. And um, I was just worried I wasn't going to do the job justice. Like I didn't feel qualified all of a sudden. And I was just nervous about literally like day one students walk in and then it like hit me. Whoa. It's a lot of responsibility. So that to me was the scariest.
0: I still have that feeling every year on the first day of school.
1: Isn't that funny? I, I know. I totally get it. Every I'm like, do I remember what I'm, do I know what I'm doing? Do I remember how to teach music? I don't know.
0: Yeah, man, I hope nobody notices that I don't know what I'm doing.
1: <laughs> I hope next year. I keep thinking about, so we, we were virtual this year. So we didn't have normal band camp and marching band. And I'm like, oh, um, next year when I go to do band camp, I won't have done it for two years or for... Yeah, really, two years. And um, I'm like, am I, do I, I won't remember what to do. What do we do at band camp? I don't know.
0: <laughs> Marching band, what's that? What is it? <laughs> so what is the most exciting part about going into the first year of teaching, do you think?
1: So I think, you know, we spend so much of our, um, like our college years, Visiting classrooms and watching other people teach. And there's so many times we say like, oh, I'm going to steal that idea or, um, oh, I'm like definitely never going to do that or whatever the case may be. And this is the chance to make the classroom your own and do all of the things you've kind of been thinking about all these years. Um and the fact that I was going to have my own students who I could develop my own relationships with, not, you know, try to, in student teaching, you're building relationships, but it's with someone else's students and that it's different. So I think just the fact that it was going to be, I don't know, at risk of sounding really like self-involved, it was going to be mine, <laughs> uh, which I think is a really big deal. And it's really exciting. And I felt this um, autonomy to kind of make it my own and, and have fun with it.
0: Yeah. What are the most important things that you can do to get ready for your first year teaching, be ready for day one, walk in the door and have everything under control?
1: I think just the the more research you can do, uh, learn about everything, every aspect of the program possible, ask a ton of questions leading up to day one. Um, you still might not walk in the door on day one feeling like Uh, totally under control, like we just mentioned, and that's okay. Um, But the more prep work you can do leading up to day one, the better. So uh, reach out to the former director, depending on what that relationship is like. And, you know, if someone retired, they're more than likely going to be willing to to share with you about their program. Um, And ask tons of questions about, you know, how they've done things in the past. I think you've everyone hears, you know, don't change too much in the first year. And I think that's true. And so the more we can learn about how things were done, um, the better situation we'll be in going forward.
0: Yeah. What about uh, building relationships and creating a network of support? What is, how should a first year teacher go about building those relationships and creating a network that can support them through the thick and the thin?
1: So I think it's important to remember that it really takes a team to to run the types of programs that we're in charge of. So, you know, we're talking about people like parents and your other colleagues and the custodians, the bus drivers, your athletic director, uh, all of your administrators, uh, secretaries, school counselors, like the list is so long. Um, And just getting to know those people and forming genuine relationships with all of them, be kind, be grateful. Um, and, and, you know, build these relationships. And then I think you'll, most of the time these relationships are really, um, beneficial for both parties. Like I, you've heard it. I'm sure if you're the marching band director, get to know the athletic director and, um, instead of it being like, when do I get to use the football field? I don't know. Like have a conversation with them about what's your, what do you do for a preseason schedule? When do you all practice is, you know, is there any chance that field could get lined one week sooner so we could do a parent show on that field? Um, you know, just have developing conversations and, and then being willing to, um, to be flexible with your plans, uh, you know, if you're going to ask them to be flexible and give a little, you're going to have to do the same. So they might say, hey, that week isn't going to work for us, but you could have the field a week later on this night and maybe you can rearrange things and make it work. I just think um, just being being easy and pleasant to work with will get you so far in life. And I think like, I don't know, I don't know if I should say this, but I think that my skill level as a teacher is like if my skill level as a teacher is here, I feel like my skill level as a, I don't know, just like interacting with other humans might be higher than that. And that gets me further than being like the world's best teacher, Um, just being able to build relationships. So and don't be afraid to ask for help from these people too when you need it.
0: Uh, I have a couple follow-ups here. So first, who are the most important people in your school building to get to know and be on their good side?
1: Yeah, I think some of the people I just mentioned probably you've probably heard it before but um secretaries and custodians are really like the backbone uh they were the people i probably became the closest friends with when i was teaching high school and because when you think about it the especially custodians they're there at weird hours just like you might be and um and they uh I don't know. We just developed these friendships, and they would be willing to come in, you know, a little extra during band camp to help clean up or um, whatever it was. I. Anytime, maybe this is like me sucking up, but anytime I was like running out for coffee, I'd be sure to swing by the custodians or the secretaries and be like, anybody want anything? And it wasn't every day, but it was once in a blue moon and just to like make their day and make them feel good. And then once I learned what the head custodian's favorite like donut order was, I could just get it for him every once in a while on his own, on my own. Um, So I think those folks, you know, the secretaries really, um, they... They're great to get to know because they have access to all of the administrators, but they're not quite as busy as all the administrator. I mean, that's wrong, probably. They're very busy. Don't get me wrong, but because they're sitting in the main office usually, they're easy to go, you know, talk to and ask questions to, and they know everybody in the school. So they're just a great person. Um, I became really good friends with our attendance secretary, and I would just go in her office and ask questions and chit chat and. Yeah, I think those are just great people to kind of have on your side as a music teacher.
0: And what's kind of interesting is I always felt extreme dedication to the students from secretaries and custodians. If you needed something done for students or they would be all over it in a heartbeat or they would get they would rally the troops to get something done for you and the student.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, The second follow-up is still building relationships, but how do you do that with students who you don't know you're just meeting on day one? What does that look like throughout the academic year?
1: I think there used to be this, this, Old idea that you know, don't let the students see you smile until whenever I don't know, Christmas or whatever it was.
0: Christmas was it was the rule I was told, yeah. yeah.
1: And you know, maybe you don't like smiling and that is natural to you, but for me. <laughs> For me, I, it would be so disingenuous if I acted that way. So I decided early on I was going to be myself and let my students see a human side of me and kind of let them into my life a little bit in in an appropriate way. I mean, they don't need to know, you know, I was 22 years old and they're like, do you have a boyfriend? What do you, and like, they don't, we don't need to go there. Also, I didn't because <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> but we, they didn't need to know those things, but they could know like, oh, I have a 10 year old nephew who's, you know, just starting to learn the trumpet and how fun is that? And you know, there's letting them into your life a little bit, I think lets them feel comfortable to open up and let, let you in as well. Um, and I, I really tried to live by this open-door policy where students knew they could come talk to me about things um, and they knew it could be confidential if necessary. And uh, I tried to just create this really safe environment for students. And it takes a little while to develop that, but um, I don't know. I think in my experience, the high school students were so eager for some of those relationships that it, it formed relatively naturally and quickly so um, not every student loves that and not every student wants to get to know me that well and talk to me on their free time but um, for the ones that do and that were interested I we were able to build some really great connections. I do think it's important to kind of like I mentioned keep um, I don't know as a a 22 year old first year teacher uh, which many of your students may be not battle. I don't know. Are, are they about that age as well? Probably. probably
0: yeah. Oh, some older, some about that age, but I mean, I've always thought regardless of your age, if you're a first year teacher, you're all on equal footing.
1: Yeah. I, I think, especially as a young teacher though, you're so close in age to your seniors. And I know I felt there were moments where I was like, these seniors are like cool people. Like in a different world, I could be friends with them. Like we could hang out and get lunch and have a good time. And that felt weird because it it was confusing at times to know where to put that boundary. Um, and I think for young teachers, that's difficult at times. Um, so I would just encourage finding that balance between letting them in and, and being yourself. Um, but also having like a clear distinction between, um, I don't know, the things you you talk to your students about and then the things that you, you know, talk to your friends about and, and making sure you make that differentiation. Because I think it is, it's confusing all of a sudden to be in this position of, you know, power, if you will, um, with people that feel like they could be your friends in a sense.
0: Yeah, there's a... It- There's a learning curve when learning the distinction between professionalism and being friendly, or there's a difference between being friendly and being friends, right?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: How should a first-year teacher go about uh, executing the curriculum that already exists for them and perhaps developing or changing the curriculum?
1: So I think um, kind of going off what we mentioned earlier, not Try not to change too many things at once. If there is a curriculum in place, one, you may be required to um, implement this curriculum. The great thing about music is that in my experience looking at curriculum, even if there is something in place, we can kind of choose in a, in a concert band setting, we could choose, okay, this music is going to, you know, check off these boxes in the curriculum. And so our, our music really becomes our curriculum and we have some, um, autonomy and choice in what, in, you know, the way we implement it. Um, so I, I always think the best place to start is to kind of obviously look at what the school's been doing in the past. Um, And if you're going to, if we just go down the concert band uh, path for a moment, um, looking at old programs is great, but finding old uh, videos is better because maybe they played um, Lincolnshire Posey, but maybe it was a total train wreck and maybe that's not a good, um, you know, idea of where they're at, uh, or maybe it is and that's great to know, Um, but just, you know. listen to video, listen to to recordings of, uh, concerts when possible. And, um, and then, you know, choose aside from just choosing the music that obviously is going to fit the curriculum, um, thinking about things like the audience and the length of the music and the experience you're going to give, um, not just the students, but parents and, and administrators and the community is really important as well. So, um, I think, As music teachers, it always feels like we have um, a lot of, because of how much repertoire there is out there, we have a lot of options for how to go about um, implementing certain curriculums. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: No, I think it does. (laughs) What I really wanted to hear was don't change anything your first year, not because you shouldn't change things and things are perfect because things need to continually evolve and fresh eyes bring a different perspective. And you'll think of things that you see, you'll see things in the curriculum and you wonder why, why do we, that's, mm, we don't need to do that. But also you don't change anything because it's job security. Right?
1: Right. And so often there's times where I think like, why did they, why would they do it that way? And then at some point, you either get the answer or you discover the answer because you're like, oh, shoot, there's a really excellent reason why they're doing things this way and not in a way that you think might make more sense. Um, I, that's happened to me so many times. <laughs>
0: it's, it's actually happened to me where I, I do get itchy to change things mm-hmm. and I do it prematurely without totally getting it. And then it comes back to bite me. And I, feel, Oh, that's why we did it that way. Well, I've really messed everything up now.
1: Yeah. I even just, even in my job right now, I've thought, um, you know, why isn't there like a, I don't know. I, I There's been times and I don't say it out loud in a faculty meeting, but there's been times where I think that makes no sense why we do something this way. And then, as I start to go down that path, maybe asking questions, it it quickly becomes clear that like I'm not the first person that considered there might be a different way, and there's a very good reason why things are the way they are. So that's not always the case, but it I that's happened to me several times.
0: I think this is also a point to make to my students: don't ever join a college faculty because there are things there that are, it, whatever. I thought that when I went made the leap to college, I was man, I'm never going to have to deal with politics ever again, and I'll get to do whatever I want all the time. And it's literally no less than 10 times as bad as it was when I was teaching high school. I feel like here there are much more considerations. And even if students do have aspirations to go be a college director, uh, not that I like to use other students as a training ground but high, teaching high school or middle school really does prepare you for higher levels of teaching education later in life.
1: Absolutely and I I have said so many times the just from a social and like I don't know like for my um like emotional well-being and everything I was so much happier. <laughs> teaching. This sounds so bad. I'm really happy right now.
0: (laughs) Those were the good old days.
1: (laughs) Back when I used to be happy. (laughs) I, when I taught high school, I, there was something about the community within a school that I loved. I like, it was just So I had so many friends in different departments, and we had time to get to know each other. And I felt like I was part of this great community. And at a university, it's, I'm still part of a great community, but it's different, because you might walk, depending on where you are, you know, you might walk through a music building, and professors doors are shut. And you know, you, there's not this same sense of community that I felt teaching high school. Uh, I, the longer I spend somewhere, the more I develop those relationships and we find times to meet and hang out on our own, but I don't think it's as, it's just not as easy in college.
0: Well, I also taught my, my first job was in a small community and the high school was a smaller high. I think we had like 600 students max. That might be overstating it, but the, the the colleagues that i taught with were also the same people that i would see in church on sunday i would see them at community events we would be at each other's houses could walk down or ride the bike over really quickly uh we we hung out all the time in the summer we went over to ryan booth's house ryan taught physics, and we would watch he said he he went on some wild amazon binge one day and bought everything he needed to watch movies outside in his backyard (laughs) and so like i i remember that type of community but you're right at the collegiate level it's just it's just different it's not any worse or better it's just different and there are things you notice like doors closed or we treat this as work versus uh, work versus home. Whereas when I taught high school, everything was in a small community. Everything was commingled. Everything there were the lines were blurred between community and work on a regular basis. And yeah. I think that's fine. And I, I, thinking about ways for students to build relationships, darn, get involved in the community. Even if it's a small community, get in there and do something that is not just music.
1: Yeah, that's such a great idea. That we we can talk about that when we talk about, gosh, you know, to creating a work life balance and having things outside of music that you do that and doing that in the community is a great way to, to get to know people.
0: Well, why don't we just skip straight to balancing work and home life before we talk about like the curricular things and all that? Sure. Um, so how how does a first year teacher balance work and home life? I remember it, it was like recreating the wheel every day of the week for an entire school year. And it, it was not uncommon for me to have at a bare minimum, 10 hour work days, if not 15, 16 hour work days. How do you balance that?
1: It's, it's so hard. And I am so much better at it now than I was then. Um, cause it's a busy job and it's, uh, I I think most of your students probably know that they're getting into a career that there's um, it's not a nine to five. Uh, There were a lot of days where I was the last car in the parking lot leaving school. There were times they had to teach me how to use the school's alarm system because no one was going to be there when I was coming or going. I did get the cops called once, but everything was fine. Um, And you know, but I do think there's sometimes students are bombarded with this idea that like, it's so busy. It's so busy. It's, you know, you have to be married to your job. And I just don't think that's true or healthy or the right way to think about things. Um, you, you can have a balance and, um, and still be a great teacher and be successful at what you're doing. So I think it's really helpful to have, um, try to have some type of personal life and, and a hobby outside of music. if your hobby also happens to be something that's really good for you physically, that's even better. It's like a double whammy. So if you love to do yoga or if you love to um, get involved in a church community or for me, when I started teaching at a college, I got involved in CrossFit. And so I um, CrossFit was not only a way to do something um, healthy for my body, but it was also a way to meet new people uh, in the community. And that was really beneficial. I think we all know what it's like to be stuck in a music building and only be friends with the music people. And it's really important to branch out and have other things in life. Um, it You have to prioritize them. And uh, there's there's only so many hours in the day, but I think if we all take a hard look at what we spend our days doing, um, we, we make time for the things that are important to us so if going to the gym is important to you then that might mean you wake up earlier than you would like to and you go to the gym and then that might mean that at night when you get home you go to bed early and so that you can get up in time um speaking of which you should sleep that's important
0: (laughs) very very important (laughs)
1: Um, I don't know about you, but I'm such a horrible person when I don't get enough sleep. I'm like just awful to be around. So um, making sure you get sleep and uh, and that you're eating. I know when we're busy and running from thing to thing and if you go from, let's say, let's say you go from the gym to work to marching band rehearsal and then like where do you eat in there is a question. So making sure that you're, um, I don't know, just that you have... I, whether it's like you have a drawer full of like protein bars if you need them it, or fruit or something like that, or I don't know, just, be, you know, thinking ahead and packing, you know, on Sunday, make a bunch of food and, and have it ready to go for your week. I think that's a great way to do that. Um, but these are all really important things that if you make time for them, uh, they will just make your life so much better. I I have always prided myself on being able to maintain a good work-life balance. Um, and sometimes that means I say no to doing things I might otherwise say yes to. I know that's tricky as a first-year teacher because if someone asks you to do something, your inclination is going to be to say yes, and that's correct. <laughs> you, you, A lot of times you should, um, but maybe it's saying no to like, I, I don't know, you ever get asked if you want to go to a happy hour and you really don't, but you feel like you should, so you go. Like I, I've started saying no to those types of things more often. And if I think, you know what I really want to do is go home and like eat dinner and watch Netflix. Like that's okay. You can do that and not feel guilty about it. Um, And another thing that I think is important is aside from maybe a hobby outside of music, it's also great to have a way to connect to kind of why you fell in love with music to begin with. So, maybe this means i don't know maybe you gosh play in a community band of some type i know we're we're talking about other more things that take up more time that you might not feel like you have but maybe there's ways to to continue playing or to um sing in a church choir or to uh i don't know like play guitar at a bar on a Saturday night, like literally whatever it is that helped you fall in love with music to find a way to keep that kind of at the forefront. Because um, I think there's times as music teachers where we get so bogged down in the the administration and the just the stuff, like it's not the stuff we fell in love with, but it's the stuff that comes with the job um, that it's good to remind us like, oh yeah, this is something we really love to do and this is why we do it. So anytime you can get involved in those things. And, uh, you know, I, I had a teacher once tell me that they, they don't remember their 20s at all because they just spent their life married to their job. And um, you, you shouldn't have to feel that way. <laughs> so don't not remember your 20s. Do enjoy your 20s um, and do things other than work <laughs> at times.
0: <laughs> agree. Uh, So the first year teachers uh, choosing music as a part of their curriculum. Um, I'm looking for a specific answer here. And if I don't get it from you, I think your information will probably be good. But I I, I have a very specific idea that I bring up to my students every single year when you go out and teach. And you want to perform Lincolnshire Posey at LGPE with your group but really what types of music are levels or genres or how do they decide what music to perform with their bands?
1: This is a good question. Um, and the, it's funny, the answer I, <laughs> I thought of was uh, probably not the music that you've been playing in your college bands. That's,
0: that's a good start. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good start. It's
1: probably not where you're going to start. And it's hard because that is what's at the forefront of your mind. So it's been a little while since you played in a high school band. And so you might be wondering, well, what do high school bands play? Maybe your high school band played terrible music and now you realize that it was terrible. Maybe it was way too hard for you or whatever the case may be. Um, so it, It totally depends on the program. It depends on what they've done in the past. Um, It goes back for me to kind of doing your research uh, on what they have done, but also kind of knowing that you have resources for finding music. So um, I utilize things like, do you have band and orchestra folks in these classes?
0: Just band this semester.
1: Okay. So things like, um, teaching music through performance in band and all of those series are great places to look for music. Um, there's, uh, a book by, um, I'm trying to think, I have a little list of some resources I can share. Um, the best music for high school band by Bob Margolis. Um, the great music for wind band by Chad Nicholson. There's really like, there's some great resources out there that you can look to. um, and then, you know, I kind of look at resources, I look at what grade level they've performed in the past, and then try to kind of, um, I would probably plan, I'm trying to figure out the answer you want to hear. That's my problem right well, no, now. I you
0: already said it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what you performed in high school or in college.
1: Perfect. (laughs)
0: That's all I wanted to hear. But what about this other idea? I heard that this was actually said to me when I was like a fifth year teacher. I was like, man, I wish I would have known that. Um, Perform music a grade level lower than what they have performed in the past. And the reasoning behind that was they don't know you, you don't know them it's your first year teaching you're you're building your bag of tricks and you're learning how to pace rehearsals so how do you feel about pulling back on the grade level of music just from a survival perspective
1: that makes a lot of sense to me it also like what's the what's the downside they're going to they're going to They're going to sound better yeah and then you're gonna because they sound good you look good right so uh, to me it's like yeah you know I think you need to be careful if you put something in front of the students that's like three grades easier than they're used to playing they're gonna be like who is this person and why don't they think we can play um but there's so much great music that's not as hard as the stuff you're playing in college right now and I think um it's easy to I don't know I feel like I remember thinking when I started teaching like okay well if I can't play Lincolnshire Posey then what do I play like what is good music and I think those resources there's more of those resources now where you can find great grade two three four music Um, so yeah I think that's a really good idea to play easier than you think you should Gosh, better than the alternative, playing music too hard.
0: And finding Mm -hmm. out, oh, man, I think this might be too hard for my group. LGPE is only two days away.
1: Right? Dude, I wish I... So when I was teaching high school, my dress rehearsals before concerts were highly stressful events. Now my dress rehearsals like I've learned if I've done my job well a dress rehearsal should be like not too long it should be pretty easy you've already done the hard work they you're just making them feel comfy on stage making sure everyone knows what they're doing but I know now that I was programming too hard we were cramming days before the concert my dress rehearsal was horrible And um, so, yes, I think all of that to say, yeah, program easier than you think you should.
0: Right. I, I also think that like if you get close to a performance and you do have a dress rehearsal scheduled, like it, I was lucky enough when I taught that we could just go perform, on, rehearse on stage any day. It was just a matter of moving chair stands, percussion stuff. And it actually took me three or four years to learn, oh, I don't have to move that stuff myself. If only I had these able-bodied young adults to do it for me. But we would go in and do that. And then, but so we would go rehearse occasionally in there and the students knew how the auditorium sounded, what the stage felt like. But then like if we got close to a dress rehearsal, I always ask, well, do we really need the dress rehearsal no one's ever going to blame you for canceling a rehearsal. No one ever said, man, I wish my band had less rehearsal time. But if you did that, no one's going to complain at all. Um, but those dress rehearsals, you're right, are not for cramming because that doesn't make anyone feel good. You should be able to walk in there and be in and out really quick and feel really great. Oh, we touched up some things. We ran through some things. Everybody sounds good. Congratulations See you at the performance
1: exactly I had a student at a dress rehearsal I think it was my first year in this position one of my percussionists said um, and I think percussionists get the brunt of some of the stress sometimes because of all their logistics and so one of my percussionists came up to me and was like you're so calm at this at a dress rehearsal and I was like well what else what should I what else would I be <laughs> and I think that his sense was other directors he had had were not like that so I I, um, even if I wasn't feeling a hundred percent calm, I would always make sure that I was exuding calm so that my students, cause I think a lot of us have heard, you know, your, your band is going to be your mirror. So if you go into a rehearsal situation, anxious and stressed out and frantic or whatever, um, they're going to like feed off of that. And it's, it's not going to be a fun, relaxing, comfortable rehearsal. So.
0: No. And same with performances too. They can feel yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you know that you're making right decisions in the moment when you're a first year teacher? How do you avoid the temptation to second guess yourself?
1: Um, I think it's hard. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I can tell you to trust yourself and, but I know that it's hard to um, I'm sure you've heard of imposter syndrome and your students might've as well. And um, I know I still feel that where I'm like, do I know what I'm doing? Am I qualified to be doing this? But um, I think reminding yourself that you're, you know, you were hired to be the expert in this field at your school and um, that you, when in doubt, I always think I I know more than my students do, right? Surely I know more than them. So um, I use that to kind of help me trust myself. Um, And I think also I, I, always aim to make decisions with the students in mind. So if I can go home and feel good about the fact that I made a hard decision, but if I can justify and say that was the best choice for the students, even if it wasn't the most popular choice or even if it didn't make everyone happy, I can, if I genuinely feel like I'm doing what's right for the students, I I know I can go to sleep at night and feel good about what I'm doing. So that's kind of how I would justify decisions I made.
0: Uh, what can first year teachers do when things don't go as planned?
1: Yeah. Cause that's definitely going to happen. <laughs> uh, things, things don't go as planned all the time. Um, and I always like to think of the, the saying, uh, that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. So your reaction to when things don't go as planned is really, um, really telling. So if you go into your first year knowing there's going to be challenges um, and and I will just be able to kind of pivot and adjust as I need to, um, that is I think what's most important. Also knowing that you're not doing this alone. I mean, there all of your teacher mentors in life were a first year teacher at one point and um, a lot of them might have been through an exact situation that you're going through now. So remembering to call, I call my mentors all the time. They probably are tired of me, but I, I reach out to them and, and ask what might feel like a silly question. Um, but it just, even if they're just confirming what I had thought, it just feels so good to hear it from someone else and give myself a little bit of confidence to, to go forward. Um, also you can, uh, I don't like to dwell in complaints or sadness but you you know have a good friend that you can call and and complain to about something crappy that happened. I don't the day that uh that my keys got cut I was living with a roommate from college and you know he came home we drank some wine and talked about the day and just complained about how terrible these students were. And then we were able to move on and, you know, go forward from there, but have someone you can, you know, complain to and then be ready to kind of like push it aside and move forward. And also, sorry.
0: (laughs) No, I I was just going to chime in and say, that's so important that you get it all out. It's cathartic. But then you get it out, and then you all right. Now I'm gonna move on. Yes,
1: and also I don't know how directly related this is to this question, but I make an effort to like record and keep the the good stuff. Like, if you have a great evaluation from an administrator um, that makes you feel good to read, like save that and file it away. Or if you get an email from a parent that's like you changed Jimmy's life by being the best director. Like those, you know, keep those things. And there will be days where you don't feel like you know what you're doing, that you can pull those out and be like, all right, you, you're not, you're at least on the right track there. You're, you're doing good things. I, um, held on to that. My first year of teaching, we had a, um, A performance assessment and so it was my first time going through this assessment where you you know you play your march and your two pieces on stage and then you go to a sight reading room and um I was terrified I didn't know what I was doing and one of the judges um left a note in my folder and I literally still have it I I um I what is it called laminated it and I kept it (laughs) So I have it with me Um, and it's, and I'm going to read it, but not to like brag and make myself sound like an awesome first year teacher because I, (laughs) I don't think I was anything special, but I, this um, made me feel like, man, I'm like on the right track. So this woman said, Brooke, I understand you're a new teacher. What an impressive job you are doing. It is evident that you have inspired your kids. I could tell the minute they played their first note, you have found your calling. Stay with it. Oh from, from Susie Kunkel. I don't even know who she is.
0: Oh, thanks, Susie.
1: <laughs> right. Oh. Do you know how many days I was like, I'm a terrible teacher. I know nothing. And then I would pull this out and be like, no, I I'm inspiring them.
0: <laughs> Susie Kunkel says, I'm a good doing a good job.
1: Yeah. So, you know, save stuff like that so that you can remind yourself that you're good at this. <laughs>
0: I also had a few in my district, we had mentors Mm -hmm. uh, and one was outside your subject area and one was in your subject area. And I, Deb Miller was mine for outside. She was one of the art teachers no, she was the art teacher and I would be down in her room on a regular basis and she would stop in and see how things were going with me. And she was always just the most positive person in the entire, like the entire, the ceiling could have been caving in and she would have still said, Mr. Harper, you're doing a fantastic job over here. Keep up the good work. Those kids love you. I know they talk about you.
1: It's so sweet. I had a, I had a a mentor too. Her name was Glenna Mutchler. She was the um, home economics teacher (laughs) and she, it was very similar. I think there's something to be said for outside of subject area mentors who can watch you teach even, and they don't know music, but they just know like good teaching and that you're forming relationships with your students. And that is, that is so sweet. Glenna, tried. She was great, but then she tried to set me up with her pastor's son at one point. (laughs) We already know I didn't have a boyfriend, but let's just say that one didn't work out either. So
0: Thanks, Glenna.
1: Thanks anyways,
0: Glenna. (laughs) Uh, All right. So last big question here. What should a first year teacher be doing to develop professionally and personally? You kind of touched on the personal aspect of this, but you know, once you graduate college, It's easy to walk out and feel like, all right, I know a lot of stuff. But then what a lot of people do is they kind of take a hiatus from learning for a while. So what should a first-year teacher be doing to learn more stuff?
1: That's a great question. And I think the teachers I admire most in life are the teachers who have never stopped trying to learn and be better at what they do. They might be at the top of their field right now but if you ask them they think man i keep trying to get better at x y and z and and so i always strive to be one of those teachers Um, from the beginning you know, seek out professional development opportunities. I know that sounds lame, but like, go, honestly, going to conferences, doesn't sound lame.
0: <laughs> no, I, I mean, yes, but <laughs> it's not lame. And if I may steal your thunder for a minute, because not just because you go and you like, you go to Midwest, you see the performances and you rejuvenate it. you rejuvenate your musical soul and you go and you attend all of these great clinics and you learn stuff and you're like, I'm going to do everything I learned in January when I get, but it's about meeting people and developing those relationships. There, There are people that I am only conference friends with and I see them once or twice a year. And we hang out and we are like old buddies. We pick up exactly where we left off and we know everything, everything about our personal lives. And, um, and those are the things that I look forward to the most, because in addition to the clinics and the performances, hanging out and talking with those people, I learn what they're doing that works. And I can I, I can ask very, have you had this happen in your room? What did you do? And they will, no, but I had something worse happen. Let me tell you what I did. And it is always, the so professional development is great, not just to grow professionally, but also personally. And kind of blur those lines between, I have some professional, personal friends that I see once a year at conferences.
1: Absolutely. And I... I kind of also think um, even outside of conferences, if there are other professionals in your area that you look up to, like invite them to lunch or something. Hey, like spend time with people who are doing this well and pick their brain. It doesn't need to be like an interview, but just, you know, soak in being around someone who has been doing this longer than you and is more comfortable with it. And um, maybe what you find out is that they still don't feel like they know what they're doing. And you're comforted in the fact that, you know, we're all still on this journey trying to be better. Um, but yeah, those, those making those relationships with people, I think is just as important as the session you sit in to learn about how to make your bassoons not suck.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Although that is a highly important topic. (laughs) That's a big one. (laughs) Second only to how to get your oboes to sound good.
1: Oh, yeah, Lord.
0: Or or, uh, the keys to tuning the third (laughs) clarinet.
1: Yeah, I need to learn that one still.
0: If anyone figures that out, you're going to make some big bucks off that one. Yeah. well, thank you for being here. I, I appreciate that you took time out of your busy day to chit chat about things that you and I are pretty uh, passionate about. And uh, do you have anything else that you want to let my students know before we kind of wrap up things that maybe we didn't touch on?
1: I guess my my last thought for you is um, if if we kept you in college long enough for you to feel ready for your first year teaching, um, you you probably wouldn't ever leave. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of, you know, getting, starting teaching is kind of like having your driver's permit. So you'll, you're gonna learn along the way as you go. And um, to just like be confident and be patient with yourself and um, be willing to admit when you need help. And uh, that's, that's it, you're, you're more ready than you think you are.
0: Yeah, they are, yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Johnson. I hope you have a good day. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Of course, it was my pleasure.
0: friends. No assignment this week as you are completing your reference recording guide and your balanced instrumentation charts. Remember, these assignments are due via email by Friday, September 25th at 1159 p.m. And that is all we have for today.